welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus, our brand-new subscriber section. This is the wave of the future with Counterpunch. The print magazine has been retired and sent off to a much better place. And in its place now, we do have the subscriber section, Counterpunch Plus. So much content there, everything from investigative pieces to cultural criticism, book reviews, much more. You should definitely check it out. Eventually, there will be additional podcasts from me too, so you can look forward to that as well. Counterpunch Plus is a great way to keep Counterpunch going to support independent media in this time when, frankly, independent media is so badly needed. Um, We're in the middle of a fund drive. I assume by the time you're listening to this, we're getting towards the end of our fund drive, and I would ask everyone to consider supporting Counterpunch now at this critical time. It is a worthy endeavor to always have this independent left perspective, particularly when we're talking about issues globally, issues that don't fit neatly into the sort of liberal corporate media uh, pigeonhole that you might expect. And so, um, Again, Counterpunch asks for your support. Counterpunch Radio t-shirts are available. Lots of merchandise, of course, books and all the other stuff that's available in the online store. And if you want to continue supporting my work, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. A lot more content there. Videos, commentaries, articles, and and a lot more. Um, So speaking of the importance of independent left perspectives on global issues, a very significant, dare I say, revolutionary moment happened in Bolivia very recently, the elections that many of us were paying attention to, and I wanted to give us a chance to delve into it in depth, and I have one of one of the best guests I could have possibly gotten. Thomas Becker is with me today. Uh, Thomas has been in Bolivia for quite a while, doing a lot of work in, in the area of human rights and in uh, research and investigation. We'll be talking a lot about that. He has been reporting on the ground in Bolivia, everything that's been going on recently. He is the supervisor in human rights practice at the University Network. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Tommy Becker. That's M-R Tommy Becker. Uh, Lots of excellent work from him there. So uh, welcome him to Counterpunch Radio. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Eric. How are you doing? Doing okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show, for speaking with us about this important issue. Look, of course, many of us have read the read, read the news, seen that there was a major event in Bolivia, an election with a result, uh, a successful result for the left. But let's take a couple of steps back, if we could, and help people come up to speed to today. Uh, about a year ago or so, we had the ouster of the former president, Evo Morales. Can you help us to understand how that happened, why that happened, and what the last year has been like? Sure. I mean, certainly it, it, it's complex. I'm going to try to like give you the cliff notes version because it's, it, it is really complicated. But you know, a, a year ago, Evo Morales resigned. Um, you know, I think internationally, a lot of people didn't know how to respond to it. Uh, you know, was it a coup? Was it not a coup? Um, there was, and it's, it's a, it is pretty nuanced. You know, there were social movements who were protesting Evo Morales. Certainly some of them were, um, did have legitimate critiques of the mosque government. But really, there, it, it was primarily an urban upper middle class uh, struggle against Evo. And, and a lot of right wing folks, uh, a lot of you know, I think folks in the U.S. Or, or a lot of activist friends like to throw on the term fascism quite uh, liberally, but 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 groups that are quite fascist, you know, that that have ties to anti-indigenous racist groups, 
Um, and for many, many months before the elections, these groups started mobilizing to basically remove Evo Morales from power. Um, Evo, you know, ran for election for this would have been his uh, fourth term. And, you know, it was very controversial whether he should have continued or not. Uh, but, you know, when when the elections came around, there were widespread protests. The Organization of American States kind of bought this this narrative that there was fraud. This was a, a narrative that really had been planted. These seeds had been planted six months before the elections even started. And, and the OAS kind of jumped on it. And it just set basically a cascade of protests by right-wing groups throughout the country. And it eventually led to a point where, you know, some of the folks on the right worked with the military, worked with the police. In fact, actually went on television and said that they paid the police uh, said that they negotiated this opposition, far right opposition leader named Camacho. Um, here he's known as Baby Bolsonaro. Uh, his father negotiated with the military, who who told Evo Morales to step down. And so Evo and several of the other Mas Party uh, leaders, dozens actually, stepped down because they started burning their houses. They started threatening them, started th- threatening to kill them and their family members, rape their family members. So a lot of Moss officials ended up stepping down. And I think, uh, you know, again, wh- even with some of the critiques of Evo Morales, this is not a democratic transition. I think that it, it, there's, for some reason, this debate of whether this is a coup, but certainly when anybody has to step down under threat to their lives, it, it, it's certainly a coup. And after Evo Morales stepped down, um, several leaders, opposition leaders, members of the, the Catholic Church, the Brazilian ambassador, called a meeting and chose the next president. They chose this woman, Yanine Añez, uh, who was from a far right-wing party who had roughly about 4% of the votes. She was relatively unknown other than she's a person who had tweeted out uh, you know, racist things about indigenous people referring to their, their customs as satanic, uh, referring to them as Indians and, and, and other quite offensive things. Uh, you know, so they chose this woman and, and she became the president all of a sudden. And <laughs> which threw the country into turmoil. I mean, nobody knew who this woman was. She didn't represent uh, kind of the will of the people on any level. And, you know, she basically made up for 13, 14 years of indigenous rule. Uh, she and her she her right-hand man, uh, Arturo Murillo, is uh, kind of her, 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 her enforcer, a lot of people say. Uh, they basically just went after those on the left. Um, radically. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a human rights attorney. I've worked in a lot of countries. Like I said, I've worked in Bolivia for most of the last 15 years uh, and I've worked under dictatorships and and basically they ran this country like an authoritarian state. Uh, In Añez's first week alone, she carried out two massacres, the first in Sacaba, uh, the second in Sencata. Uh, In both massacres, in, in Sacaba, there were 11 people killed and 120 plus injured. All were indigenous on the side of the state, zero police and zero soldiers were killed or injured. Four days later, the same thing happened in Sencata. 11 killed, dozens injured, zero police, zero soldiers uh, killed. So it was very clearly a massacre. Um, you know, I spent much of the last year doing a report for Harvard's Human Rights Clinic and the University Network for Human Rights on, on, on the killings and, and other human rights abuses. And, you know, this was the second... When when Añez took power, it was the second deadliest month since Bolivia became a democracy nearly 40 years ago. And, and from that point on, from the Sacaba and Sencata massacres, you know, the human rights violations amplified. You know, they threw in threw critics into jail. They uh, arrested journalists for sedition or terrorism if they if they criticized the government. 
Uh, they went after hundreds of Moss officials or their family members, also charging them with terrorism, sedition, genocide, just these extreme crimes. Uh, and, and many are still in jail. In fact, today I was at a, uh, a hearing for a, a union leader who had been charged with terror, terrorism, sedition, and genocide, all three, I think, uh, for organizing protests against the government. So this is then the climate for the last year where people are afraid to, <laughs> to speak out. I mean, like I said, I think people can, can be very creative when they say, oh, this is, this is a dictatorship or they're acting like a fascist. But, but quite literally, the behavior of this government was dictatorial and has been incredibly repressive in a, in really an unprecedented level since Bolivia became a democracy, uh, like I said, nearly 40 years ago. And before we come forward to the elections uh, most recently, can you talk a little bit about what the Anya's government was able to do on the economic side over the last year? Of course, we had a decade and a half of uh, nationalization and movement towards a more, let's not call it socialism, but a more socialistic uh, form of economic governance. And so what happened over this year? Did we see a wave of privatizations? Was there an attempt to reverse some of what Evo had done? How did that work? Yeah, well, I mean, so Anya's when she took power, she said, I'm here just as an interim president. I'm a placeholder. Her her whole mandate was to call elections within 90 days, which clearly didn't happen. It's, you know, nearly a year later and we finally had elections. So the moment she came in power, they started pushing forth these kind of right wing policies, starting with kicking out Cubans and Venezuelans, um, including the doctors, which, which has really been actually quite quite problematic during this this pandemic. All the Cuban doctors were kicked out of the country. Uh, they arrested Bolivians that were associated with them. The person in charge of it was, was thrown in jail. Um, they opened relations with the United States and Israel. Um, and then, as you said, they started uh, trying to privatize a lot of the industries. So they attempted to privatize the, the communications industry. They tried to uh, privatize the airports and... Uh, as well as the, the the major airline in the country, and uh, several of her ministers actually resigned in because of the privatization. And these are far right wing ministers. You know, to, just to give perspective on kind of what this government was. You know, when she came into power, all of her new ministers that she named, every single one was white or mestizo. There were zero indigenous people, and this is the most indigenous country in, in the Americas. Uh, in contrast, when when Abel took power, 14 of the 16 first ministers were all indigenous. So she came in power. She she named a bunch of far right wing business elites as her cabinet. But even some of them resigned because, again, her her mandate was to call elections within 90 days. Instead, she stayed in power for nearly a year and just in, pushed forward these right wing policies. It just basically, stepped, again, stepped on the will of the people and ignored what the social movements and the masses wanted. And, 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 you know, fortunately, I think before jumping up to the elections, you know, a, a lot of this, the results of these elections was a backlash to her just completely kind of forcing uh, these policies of the of the economic elites that really had been in power for, for well, since the Spanish came. Um, I think there was a lot of resentment over the last 13, 14 years when Abel was in power for things like you talked about, you know, his kind of quasi-nationalization of, of some industries his left-wing rhetoric, and the fact that he was indigenous. You know, you can't downplay the fact that racism is very, very much alive here. Again, she, Anya's had made several racist comments in tweets. Many of her ministers had made many comments about indigenous people being animals or savages that they would hunt down. Uh, You know, it's been a, (laughs) sadly, it's been a very, very rough year here in Bolivia. 
Yeah, and sadly, that holds true for the Latin American right in most countries. Uh, you could have easily just described that exact same portrait of the Venezuelan right wing and how they treated uh, Hugo Chavez, calling him a monkey and so forth. But uh, anyway, without without digressing too far into that, because that's that's its own subject that deserves analysis. Let's talk a little bit about the election, Thomas, if we could. Um, tell us about Luis Arce, who is he and what does he represent? By by that, I mean, what uh, segments of the country, what segments of the working class and so forth does he represent? And then maybe you could also tell us about David Chokiwanka, who who he is, who he represents, the uh, the demographic makeup and so forth of this mass coalition that won so big. Certainly. So, you know, I'll talk about them both together because I think they were the package that uh, in some ways won. So David is from, you know, he is a mestizo. He's an economist, an incredibly, incredibly bright economist. Uh, he was the the ministry of Econ- minister of economy under Evo uh, for many of the last, you know, I think handful of years, handful of years. He he was the minister of economy. He, uh, you know, Bolivia has just for many years it was the poorest country in South America. For the last, I believe, four maybe five years, uh, it's been the fastest growing economy in in, in Latin America. Um, you know, really people have done well in, in Bolivia. It, it is a very poor country, but poverty is halved, extreme poverty is halved. Um, but even the middle class and the upper class, it's it, the pie got bigger, uh, it, 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 which is kind of ironic because, you know, the far right for being as angry as they are at Evo Morales, you know, they, they did better under his government. Um, and a lot of it was because of Luis Arce, Lucho Arce, as they call him here. Um, and, and Lucho did a really, you know, strong... He did a great job under uh, under Evo Morales, um, and so he was brought in, you know, to, the pre- to be the president or the presidential candidate. And David Choquehuanca, you know, kind of filled in this other gap, which you know, David is from the Altiplano, a village in the Altiplano. David is a you know an indigenous leader. He has a lot of support in in rural communities. I mean, he has support in the cities as well, but he is more of kind of the social movement uh, indigenous leader. Um, Whereas Lucho is, is kind of the more academic, theoretical guy. And I think together there was this kind of complete package of what the MAS has developed into over these years, which is, you know, somewhat academic. Uh, you know, there is this kind of top-down nature to part in part to the MAS. And then there's this whole other bottom-up part, which is the, it's driven by the social movements. And I think David is certainly very, very well respected amongst the social movements, particularly the indigenous social movements here in Bolivia. So there was kind of this... It represented where what the MAS has grown into over the last 13, 14 years. And I should add, actually, David was a, a minister for Evo Morales for many years, uh, the Minister of Foreign Relations. And in more recent years, he was the ambassador to ALBA, uh, the, the trade agreement with you know the leftist countries in Latin America. Just a quick follow-up on that. How is it that Arce was able to... Uh survive long enough to, to, to run in this way. I, I, and I mean to say not just survive in a physical sense, I mean that too, but politically survive given how close he was to Evo and given how much resentment there was, even among some of the uh, social movements towards some of the, let, let's call it overreach that some felt uh, the Evo administration was guilty of. I, you know, honestly, it, it's kind of shocking how well the government did do in this climate and the fact that Lucho was able to and David were able to run campaigns. You know, I, I kind of touched on it earlier, but the government, the Anya's government, the interim government or the de facto government really has targeted the Moss Party leadership 
at an unprecedented level. Uh, up to 600 people were under investigation for charges of sedition and terrorism under the Anya's administration. Hundreds were thrown in jail. Uh, they targeted, it, it, it became this point where, you know, the more outspoken you were as a leader in the Moss Party, or if you were perceived to be part of the Moss Party, you were, they went after you. And they went after, and it wasn't just the Moss leaders. It was, they went after Moss leaders, uh, family members, arresting them for sedition and terrorism, or even, you know, people that are marginally related to them or have, you know, like personal uh, employees. So Avo's, uh, Avo's personal uh, secretary, the person who literally picks up his laundry or organizes his haircuts, got thrown in jail uh, for terrorism, for having a phone call with them. The, uh, one of the former ministers, uh, the babysitter of one of the former ministers was thrown in jail for terrorism. So they went after the <laughs> folks associated with the Moss, including Lucho, who from, you know, he has, I, I don't know if they've technically dropped the charges or not, but, you know, the government charged him with terrorism, sedition, and I believe genocide for protests that took place earlier this summer, where the, you know, the social movements were demanding elections and, uh, you know, the government basically charged any of the leaders marginally related to the protests or not even necessarily related to the protests. They charged them with sedition or genocide or terrorism. So it's been incredibly difficult to actually have a campaign over the last year. Um, I know you asked about Lucho, but I'm, I, I'm going to talk about one woman in particular because I think she really exemplifies the, the repression against the Moss Party and, and social movement leaders and those who criticize the government. There's a, a mayor, now senator, uh, named Patricia Arce, who last November was kidnapped, uh, dragged through the streets. They assaulted her, sexually assaulted her, uh, cut her hair and scalped, scalped, dumped red paint and gasoline on her and made her walk several kilometers in the streets with glass and then eventually paraded her in front of cameras and told her to denounce the Moss Party, which she refused to do. Uh, she was basically rescued by the police. The police took her uh, to a hospital, didn't arrest any of the people that kidnapped her. And over the last 10, 11 months have been, has been just completely harassed by this government. I mean, the footage, you know, it, it, it for Bolivia doesn't go viral too often and, and it went viral, you know, all the major, you know, commercial newspapers picked it up. Um, and so she was given precautionary measures by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And that's where a government has to give extra protection to, uh, a person who gets who receives a recipient, and the government instead of protecting her, instead of providing her police or military, they threatened her and they said, you know, if you tell anybody that we're not doing anything, we're going to come after you. And she did, and they went after her. They charged her with sedition and terrorism. They arrested her, her underage uh, child, threw them in jail illegally. Uh, people continue to harass her, threaten her. They. Um, Grupos de choque, shock groups or parastate groups, you know, would threaten her life. She had to go into hiding. They they killed her dogs just a few months, maybe a month or two ago. They poisoned her dogs and threatened to kill her her children. Uh, this is the climate. And, and and during this whole period, she was running to be senator uh, in Cochabamba, in this in the state of Cochabamba. And this is the climate where you know leaders are trying to run a campaign. They're getting threatened with charges. They're getting threatened by parastate groups. They're getting threatened by the government. So again, it's it's shocking to me, honestly, that, that Lucho and David were able to win with such a big, I, I think people were not expecting such a big win uh, in this climate because, you know, as a human rights lawyer, we look into like whether there can be fair and free elections. And I certainly think that, that this was not an environment where there were fair and free elections, but nonetheless, the Moss won overwhelmingly 
with more votes than they've ever gotten, you know, more votes than anyone's ever gotten in, in Bolivian history. Before I just jump to the next question, just a side note, hearing that kind of description, of course, it's chilling and and deeply galling, but it, I think it again reminds us just how petty some of the grievances towards Evo really were, because even if you had issues with some of the things his government did, what ultimately and very predictably followed the depo- the deposing of Evo is just, I mean, it's criminal. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I think certainly there are, uh, there are legitimate critiques of the mosque government each, you know, and, and I think social movements have a responsibility to hold leftist governments, all governments to account. So it's not, I'm not saying on any level that there were not problems with the mosque, but, but it, it was almost shocking over this last year, how much the Anya's administration was able to get away with. And a lot of it came down to really upper and middle-class liberals that, that kind of let it slide in some ways. You know, they were very critical of Avo. They nitpicked on stuff that Avo did. And again, they should have criticized them. I'm not saying that that shouldn't have happened, but a lot of them got in bed with the right in the previous six months leading up to the election. And the irony is these groups went out and protested in the streets about democracy, yet they were, they were, basically in bed with these groups that are overtly anti-democratic, that believe indigenous people are inferior, that they should not vote. And so really what happened is Agnes came to power. And I think some of the more kind of elite uh, moderates, it's not that they necessarily supported Agnes, but I think a lot of them really doubled down or were silent over the last year because it was almost like some had to come to terms with the fact that they just hope, helped open the door for the far, far radical right to come to power and just go on a campaign of, of repression and terror, like I said, that hasn't really existed since since the dictatorships. Uh, and so the, 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 the liberal class was quite, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of like an extreme version of, of, you know, Democrats sometimes in the United States letting Republicans get away with just atrocious things. You just hit the multiply button times a thousand, and that's what it took. What happened here, and, and it really, the, the problematic part is when you have some of these kind of more moderate elites that are um, whitewashing Anya's and her government. I think this is why the international community didn't know how to respond. Like I said, this was this was authoritarian behavior, very clear authoritarian behavior. They carried out massacres, they arrested and tortured people on levels unprecedented, and you know. When you have a professionalized class saying, no, well, but it was bad under AVO too, you know, it really distracted. And I think the the international community didn't know how to mobilize in response to it. I I should also add that, you know, I think part of the the reason people weren't kind of aware of the magnitude of the abuses is is that the Anya's government hired a consulting firm from the United States, CLS Strategies, uh, which primarily works with Democrats. Um. But this, this, this firm was hired in 2003, 2002, members of this firm were hired for uh, this guy, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, the ex-president of Bolivia, who uh, just last month, I work on a case against him, and about a month, sorry, two months ago, uh, the, an appeals court you, you know, sided with us, and he was found as, uh, responsible for extrajudicial killings. This guy hired members of this firm years ago to create a fake crisis. Uh, there's a documentary about it called Our Brandis Crisis. And there's also a Hollywood movie that's not quite, not nearly as good as the documentary, also called Our Brandis Crisis with uh, Sandra Bullock, um, based on this fake crisis they created. It, anyway, they hired this same consulting, these folks from this consulting firm to rebrand their image in terms of human rights, democracy, and elections. And uh, this is the same organization hired by the Honduran government after the coup there. 
And what they did is they sent out all this fake news. Uh, there were something like over a million tweets that went out with the no es golpe, like not, it's not a coup hashtag. These were found to be fake accounts. Uh, just last month, Facebook uh, took down a bunch of these accounts created by CLS strategies for the Bolivian government, uh, basically sending out fake news. It was actually the first U.S. company that had their accounts shut down uh, because they were spreading misinformation. So it was a mixture of the Anya's government quite literally hiring a, a PR firm to clean their image up and, and really kind of moderates and liberals getting in bed with this far-right government to legitimize it and, and kind of just divert from all the human rights abuses and then kind of point fingers, well, it was bad and under AVO, so yeah, maybe it's a little like a pendulum, but but this is on no levels a pendulum. This was certainly there were abuses under AVO, but the extreme level of abuses in this last year, uh, like I said, it's just it's it really is, has been unprecedented. I would also heap a tremendous amount of blame on on some leftists who also, in my opinion, ran interference for the right during this coup by engaging in somewhat pedantic debate about whether or not it is a coup, whether or not Evo deserved to run for another term and all of the rest of that in the midst of a far right takeover of a Latin American state. Um, and I'm going to hold off on naming any names or getting into publications, but I think everyone who's followed this issue knows how much disinformation was swirling in the days around Evo's ouster and how many outspoken uh, pundits got it terribly, terribly wrong. So, but anyway, before we go to the break, uh, Thomas, I just want to ask you one more question just about the campaign to talk a little bit about the style of the campaign. And what I mean to say is for those of us who maybe aren't familiar with elections outside of the United States or outside of our own country, what did this campaign look like? What did it look like in the indigenous regions? What did it look like in the cities? How different was the campaigning in those, uh, in, in these different parts of the country? Well, you know, I, I can speak to kind of what campaigns are like in Bolivia versus the United States in general, but but this year was different. Like I said, I think there was such extreme repression that the the social that that the Moss Party, the leadership, really struggled to run a kind of a more traditional campaign. Nonetheless, you know, they were going into the indigenous communities. They were Bolivia is this really interesting. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's this kind of semi anarcho syndicalist, semi quasi socialist with kind of a capitalist economy, but, but it really is a bottom up. The, the, the social movements, the base really drives uh, what's going on in this country. And so, you know, to be a successful, uh, to run a successful campaign, you need to meet with the social movements. You need their blessing. You need to hear them out. And so really David and Lucho, despite the pandemic, were traveling all over the country and, and listening to folks in, in really small villages I mean, anything ranging from giant, you know, unions, the biggest unions in the country to small villages to really hear what people wanted and, and to hear their voices. And I think it was uh, it was refreshing because I think one of the critiques of the, the Moss Party was that it became kind of top down uh, towards the end. And, and they started to kind of, uh, they you know, some leaders, people thought some of the leaders were not listening to the social movements. And, and I think really David and, and, and Lucho really did invest in the communities and, and really try to listen to what they needed. And I think resoundingly people said that, you know, the main thing was we need elections. <laughs> and they and this is why there were widespread protests this summer. Uh, despite the pandemic, people went out and, and blocked, you know, all the main roads throughout the country demanding that there be elections because the government, the Anya's de facto government had canceled them uh, three, three times at this point. 
so, so I think the campaign was really a, a bottom-up kind of in, invest themselves into the community and listen to the community. And I think that's in some ways why, why they won with such you know, extremely large numbers. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about the future in Bolivia. What should we expect from the new government? What are some of the challenges it might face? What's the far right likely to do? And what should we expect in the near, medium, and long term? Uh, That and a whole lot more. I'll continue with Thomas Becker. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means It's equal rights for every man regardless of his strength So don't let no one fool you Joshua said Listen as I tell you Joshua said No man are better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is linking hearts and would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes, saying he's got a lot to lose. Don't want to hear about sufferer at all. One man have too many, while too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Do you believe me? People pulling together. Oh, love and togetherness. That's what it means. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Thomas Becker again on Twitter at Mr. Tommy Becker, MR Tommy Becker, supervisor of the human rights practice at the University Network. So much great information. I want to really just pick up right where we left off, Thomas, talking about the election and well actually let's just continue analyzing the election a little bit because i think it'll help us to see where this might be going so i want to ask you about the senate because i was doing a little bit of research in preparation for our conversation and 
correct me if I'm wrong, because this might not be accurate, but my understanding is that although the MAS, that's the movement for uh, towards socialism, although they won big, they're actually going to have probably a fairly slim lead in the Senate. Uh, so can you speak to a little bit how much control they will actually have in the government? And uh, will the right be able to basically have veto power over anything they do? Sure. So the Moss, you know, overwhelming over the last 13, 14 years has both controlled the executive and the Senate. Uh, they have a two thirds majority currently in these last elections. They, they still have a majority, but they don't have the two thirds, uh, but they obviously won the presidency. Um, you know, it's, I'm not sure yet. I think a lot of it comes down to whether they can build relationships with uh, kind of more moderates. Um, Carlos Mesa, who was who came in second place, you know, he he really <laughs> the, the Moss won with 55 percent. Carlos Mesa had almost half of what, what the Moss had. So, you know, he he did come in second, but he didn't have that much power. But there are moderates within that 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 party that they might be able to to work with and get a majority. Um, the right is very strong, but I, I, you know, it, it really depends if they can develop relationships. And, and I think it's possible. I mean, I think this was part of their strategy in, in, in selecting, selecting Lucho to become the presidential candidate. I mean, he is not, he doesn't necessarily use the same fiery rhetoric as, as Abel Morales used to, you know, he's not a, he's not like Chavez. Um, he, he's a, a soft-spoken man. I think a lot of people, Think he has a lot of integrity. He's certainly a bright guy, and you know when he when when the Moss won, uh, you know about a week ago, his speech was you know the first thing he said was, "Look, we we need to to right our wrongs, and we need to work with people on the other side." And I think that was a signal to hopefully bring in people and bring in some of kind of the more some of the social movements who who became disillusioned with the Moss and some of the more. I mean, you know, elite progressives that that are necessary to really do a lot of the things that the Moss Party wants to do. Um, but there is a strong right wing opposition. And, and uh, you know, they got a taste for power over the last year. And they've had 13, 14 years to, to be really angry about an indigenous person ruling the country. And, and so I think they're going to run up. The, it's going to be a tough uh, next few years. You know, I think they've also inherited an incredibly complicated economic situation with the pandemic. Uh, the the country is still incredibly polarized. I mean, there's as we speak right now, there's people in the streets still um, protesting, saying there was fraud. You know, despite all the international institutions that came and said that there was no fraud. You know, the far right says there's, there's fraud. They're asking the military to take over. I mean, they're, they're explicitly asking the military to carry out a coup. Uh, they are praying in the streets to uh, have the mosque um, removed from power. So I, you know, I think they're going to constantly have to butt up against that. And after you know a year of having some power, the right is definitely felt emboldened, and I think we'll push back. and And, and it, it's it's polarized, and I don't see them working with the Moss. Um, hopefully, there are members of of Carlos Mesa's party that that are a little more level headed, and, and will work with the Moss on some of these necessary policies that they're you know they're going to have to enact some stuff to to respond to the pandemic and, and some of the other problems that the country's been going through. One of the interesting analyses I was reading, uh, and I could I can't even remember where, but uh, had to do with the support that Arce was able to draw from the initial supporters of Mesa, and it was 
quite fascinating to read that uh, Mesa really made an attempt to appeal to the right in order to sort of shore up, uh, you know, a coalition, basically call it the anti-Mas vote. And in doing so, apparently lost some significant percentage of the voters in the center. Uh, so my question is, um, as Arce takes over, who exactly is he appealing to? Because if he's appealing to those in the center, aren't they the same ones that stood idly by while Eva was removed? So I guess the question is, uh, to use Marxist language here, is this making a deal with the bourgeoisie? Somewhat. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, something I, I, I'd like to kind of highlight is, I, and I don't want to downplay the role that, that Lucho has played in the elections, nor David, they're, they're both, uh, I think, brought a lot to the table. But really, these elections weren't necessarily about the candidates. I think that the, the overwhelming 55% that voted for the Moss, they were voting against racism. They were voting against authoritarianism. They were voting, voting against violence. Um, so it wasn't necessarily the candidates. I think you still have, you know, you have an indigenous majority here in the country. And over the last year, they have listened to people call them animals. They have been beaten in the streets. They have been tortured. And so a lot who maybe were disillusioned with the mosque last year, uh, it, you know, really at the end of the day, it was kind of a no brainer for them. It was you either vote for authoritarianism or you vote for the mosque party. And I think the mosque represented, uh, you know, resistance to the overwhelming, overwhelming repression over the last year. So um, certainly I think that Lucho as kind of a more mestizo academic, um, I think it does bring in some of the middle class um, or the bourgeoisie, the more kind of liberal bourgeoisie. But really, you know, I, what we did over the last year in, in documenting the abuses, you know, I talked to folks in, in, in all sorts of communities. And I did talk to a lot of folks who said they didn't, you know, like indigenous communities, working class communities, union folks who said, you know, maybe Abel shouldn't run anymore. Uh, we didn't vote for him or we didn't support him, who now said, we are, it doesn't matter who's in the mosque, we're voting for the mosque. So I think there was this, a critical mass of folks that are not part of the bourgeoisie that that were maybe disillusioned that either voted nulo, like they vote didn't vote, or they voted like null, um, uh, that, that, did, that now support the mosque. And I think the mosque really hopefully has learned from some of their errors over the last 13, 14 years. Uh, certainly that's the kind of the language they, that's, those are things that they've been saying explicitly, like, look, we've made some mistakes. We've had a whole year to think about them and we really need to get back to the social movements and do what the Moss was originally doing, you know, 13, 14 years ago when we first came to power. That being said, certainly there are members of the middle class that I think, you know, really Anya has got to a point where at the beginning, I think it was just kind of, there was so much dust in the air and so much animosity that, that some of the more progressive bourgeois folks were you know, didn't either, I didn't, either didn't want to accept what was going on, didn't see it. But by the end of the year, after all this corruption, after so many people were thrown in jail, I think that there are, you know, progressive elites that did vote for the mosque because, and it, so I don't think it necessarily means that Lucho has to kind of cater to the, the right to get things done. Um, maybe to some of the bourgeois leftists or liberals, but I think, uh, you know, again, they came to him, they came to the mosque party because, like just like what you said, you know, I I think that 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 Carlos Mesa catered to the right. He was silent during the massacres. He was silent while they were committing unprecedented abuses. And I think some for some people it was like, 
I, I just can't get in bed with someone like this. I certainly can't get in the bed with the right. And this guy who at least purports to be more moderate is, is catering to these fascist elements and we just can't be part of it. So I don't know how much, I mean, I think Lucho will have to, and the Moss Party will have to, there, there will be some concessions, but I don't think they will have to do as many as, as some believe, because I think people came to the Moss because of the options on the table, boy, uh, you know, far right-wing fascism or someone who's been silent in in the face of repression versus a party who's spoken out against the repression. For a lot of people, it was an easy vote. You mentioned far-right fascism. Let's just very briefly touch on Camacho, the far-right candidate. Um, obviously, the 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 primary question having to do with whether or not his candidacy split the vote, split the right. I'm sure that there is infighting on the right about that very issue. Um, so I'd like to get your comment on that. And then the maybe the the more important part of this question i'd like you to help us understand a little bit about the uh the the region of santa cruz and uh what it represents what camacho's support in santa cruz represents what the class dynamics of that region are versus the rest of the country and why it matters that the fascists are in 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 a sense have a stronghold in one of these major urban centers yeah, well, I mean, Santa Cruz really, since Evo took power, there, it has always been kind of a, a problem for Evo Morales. I mean, I think he tried to chip away at that by by uh, opening up some economic opportunities for some of the more moderate business elites there. But there's been a fascist movement for many, many years, a very overtly racist. I mean, even Camacho's youth uh, group that he came from, you know, you can see videos online of them this year doing the Nazi salute. You know, they openly will beat up indigenous people, call them, you know, all sorts of racist anti-indigenous names, attack senores de pollera. Um, this is a, you know, these aren't bad apples. There is a critical mass of far right wing. It, it would be like, you know, the Proud Boys on crack, I suppose. You know, uh, it, it, Bolivia has its own Proud Boys problem, but they're heavily armed, very, very racist and very angry, again, from so many years of, uh, of, of rule by indi an indigenous leader, by Evo Morales. Um, when he took power, there was all sorts of conversations about seceding, um, about, I mean, there were a couple alleged coup attempts from folks in Santa Cruz. Um, and so, I, you know, this is going to be a problem over the coming years. This group uh, of far right wing, again, I, I think people use this liberally, but I think it's, you can legitimately say fascists uh, in, in Santa Cruz have been emboldened. And I think they're going to continue to be problematic for the MAS, for indigenous people, for the left. Uh, like I said, right now, they're they're organizing protests, saying that there was, you know, calling for a coup, saying that there's there was fraud. Uh, you know, you can find videos online of them chanting anti-indigenous. Uh, you know, if you don't jump, you're an Indian. Like <laughs> this language that's just and it's very normalized there. It's not, you know, it, it's quite strange. You know, forgive me for being anecdotal, but when I first came here, you know, a good 15 years ago, you know, I lived in South Africa in the, in the late 90s. I'd seen some very racist <laughs> behavior in an in, in apartheid state. And when I moved to Bolivia, I, it was genuinely worse. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I, I I went into a coffee shop and some woman yelled because an indigenous woman came in and she yelled, what the F is this dirty Indian doing in here? Uh, the first time I went to Santa Cruz in the first 20 minutes in the air, actually in the airport, same thing happened, yelled, why is there a dirty Indian in here? I mean, the racism is incredibly strong in Santa Cruz. That's not to say that everyone in Santa Cruz is like that, but there is a very large percentage that is and, and will continue to fight against the, 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 the Lucho government. 
And I, like I said, I think they felt emboldened. And I think now they have a leader. They have baby, baby Bolsonaro, Camacho, who's, who's been a voice. I mean, I think the right has struggled for so many years to, to really resist uh, the Moss party. They've had candidates kind of in and out of jail. They've had infighting. But Camacho has been very outspoken and, and mobilized people in the same way that Trump has. You know, it, it's, it's like he, he kind of says what he wants to say and people feel emboldened by this. And, and they've really backed him. And, and though he doesn't really have much of a political platform, and I, you know, I, I, in the same way, I, you know, he's, even for a right winger, I don't know if he knows how to lead, but I think he's got a lot of people behind him and he's going to continue steamrolling forward. You know, in terms of whether he affected the elections or not, you know, I think he maybe upset some moderates. But even if you combined, you know, well, Lucho won with 55%. If you, if you remove Camacho and gave Mesa all his votes, he still, Lucha would have won easily by, you know, good 10 or 11%. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's split the right. I think the center still is kind of, when, when by say center, the center right, uh, you know, it's the center here is, uh, I don't think it's very center. I think Mesa represents kind of more the right wing, but they, he did have some kind of more center liberal folks that supported him. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's split that. I think people in that camp still are so frustrated with Evo Morales that, uh, you know, some are certainly frustrated with Camacho, but I think they would rather, in the way that Mesa was willing to get in bed with Camacho, I think they would they would rather bet on the right than they would uh, support Lucho. In the few minutes that we have remaining, I want to just hit on a couple of other important points here. Um, one of the major topics of discussion vis-a-vis Bolivia over the last year has been lithium uh, and uh, you know mineral deposits in general, but lithium specifically. So can you speak a little bit about how that issue has played, not uh, maybe in the election, but more, more generally how that is discussed in Bolivia? I mean, certainly this was uh, a major issue, you know, uh, behind sort of analysis of the coup initially famously elon musk's tweet about we'll coup whoever we want you know the owner of tesla and so forth but how much has the lithium issue played inside of bolivia and then maybe more broadly can you speak to some of these issues about mineral extraction and how bolivia plans on generating wealth given the global pandemic and economic crisis and fall of commodity prices and all of the other things that have afflicted venezuela and brazil and all the other countries in Latin America? Yeah. So, you know, the lithium thing is interesting. So y- y- certainly Elon Musk's tweet, uh, you know, was, is really quite offensive, an offensive tweet. Uh, you know, I think the left, we sometimes like to simplify uh, the political situation in places like Bolivia. And it's always like the U.S. is a, is the bad guy who's like the, the right wants to come in and extract all the resources and send it to the U.S. And certainly that is the dynamic here. But I, I have seen that a lot of folks over the last, you know, several months or even year have said, well, this has all been about lithium. It's all of the, you know, they wanted to overthrow the government so they, they get access to Bolivia's lithium. And I don't think that really, I mean, I think that might be a small factor. I mean, but I think it was more about, you know, Abel Morales staying in power. I think there was problem. Uh, there is certainly Abel Morales being a voice of resistance or a voice against U.S. hegemony, but it wasn't necessarily about the resources per se, uh, or at least lithium per se. That being said, I mean, certainly that's part of the history here in Bolivia, and it's been the thing that I think really got Abel Morales into power. The, the gas, the war, there was the water wars, the gas wars, um, the, the person I mentioned earlier, Gonzalo Sanchez de Luxada, the president that uh, 
you know, I've been working on a case against for many, many years that we recently won. Uh, you know, he privatized many of the industries in Bolivia. Uh, it was his decision to, to privatize gas and, and, and ex, uh, export it through Chile up to the United States um, that really made the social movements come out in, in almost, you know, almost un, unprecedented levels and that eventually led to his downfall. And so, you know, resource extraction is part of the conversation, but I, I, I do think that, you know, I have heard, I, I've seen folks on the left kind of simplify it. It was as simply like, oh, we just wanted their lithium, so we overthrew uh, Evo Morales. And, and it's not that simple. It's it's way more nuanced. I think there's a lot of things that frustrated people in Bolivia with, with Morales, folks on the right, many, many things, you know, his politics, his his rhetoric, him being indigenous, and some of his mistakes too. So um, the lithium was one of many, many factors, I would say. Um, in terms of how to control the economy over the coming years, boy, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think that's the conversation folks are having. I would say that, you know, of all the candidates, putting aside, you know, my own, you know, left-wing politics, it, you know, I, I do think that, like, of all the candidates, the, the person who's certainly most prepared to handle the storm that's that's inevitably going to come is Lucho Arce. I mean, he he really has been the guy that, that that's like I said, Bolivia's been you know the fastest growing economy for several years now, and it really was under his leadership. Um, I, you know, I think I don't know what what the plan is. I, I I've actually talked with officials where they're trying to kind of figure out what are the next steps, how bad is this pandemic going to be, how long is this going to take place. You know, I think as you mentioned earlier you know, you said Abel's kind of almost socialist policies, you know, really Bolivia is not as socialist, I think, as people think. I mean, certainly as a free market economy, uh, the government has somewhat nationalized industries or taken 51%. Um, I think one of the critiques of Morales government is that he was willing to work with agribusiness and and participate in extractionism that, that, that really frustrated some environmentalists. So, you know, over the coming years, it's it's not clear. I think that, you know, that on one hand, you have a government that's trying to protect indigenous rights, the environment, uh, and, and have a kind of quasi socialist economy. On the other hand, you know, when you have an economy that's so much based on uh, hydrocarbons and natural resources, um, you know, and, and we're in a really tough economic time, it's not clear, you know, what direction they're going to go. I think there's divisions in the party. Uh, whether they go more hardline socialists or whether they open up to more agribusiness and things like that uh, to, to generate some sort of money in, in you know, what's going to be a, a pretty tough storm over the next probably year or two. Just earlier today, I, I read word of a high-profile assassination in Bolivia, an assassination, uh, well, the killing, let's say, I, I, let's not call it assassination, but let's call it a killing of uh, a high-profile union activist. I know you have a lot of familiarity uh, not w- with, you know, with the lay of the land as far as union activists and, you know, the activist community there in general. So can you speak a little bit about uh, either this killing or more broadly um, you know, the sort of the repercussions of this election as it pertains to street violence and assassinations against leftists and indigenous leaders? You know, it's it's really interesting. So um, you're referring to Orlando, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk about him in a second. But, you know, the night of the elections, when, when the Moss Party won, it, it wasn't a big celebration in the way, you know, you see in the United States, like big party things where people are like, there were no like fire firecrackers and, and people blasting music. It was this relief, you know, people were crying, <laughs> people broke down. It was 
oh my God, I can't believe this year is over. And for five days or so, you know, people didn't celebrate. It was this kind of weird silence because it was, like I said, on some levels relief, but then also this like, we don't, you know, this feeling of we don't know what's going to happen next. Like, is there going to be another coup? Um, what is the military going to do? There have been some statements by military officials that certainly hinting that there will be a coup. Certainly the right has explicitly said the military needs to take over. And then you have these parastate groups that are operating in a way that they, they haven't in, in years. You know, you have the motoqueros, which are um, based in Cochabamba. And, and, well, and it's in Santa Cruz as well. And you have, so you have these, these groups that are radical and violent. And so Orlando, this union leader who you mentioned, you know, he unfortunately was killed. Uh, you know, the, we don't know exactly what happened. Um, you know, the, what's what's kind of leaked to the media is that he was beaten to death. Um, we're still trying to get information. But what I can say is that he received many, many threats. Uh, I, I, you know, I know his lawyer who requested precautionary measures for him because him and his family were receiving threats by these right wing groups. And they are very strong right now. Uh, you know, I, I've worked in Bolivia, like I said, for nearly 15 years. And, and I sued the ex-president and defense minister. I certainly have enemies. <laughs> and I've never had the problems that I've had over the last year. I've been attacked multiple times for doing human rights. They say he's with human rights. He's a Castro Chavista. He's a communist. Get him. And they try to attack me. Uh, the ombudsperson, who's a friend of mine, someone went into his office with a loaded gun to kill him. You know, many people I know have been beaten by these parastate groups and they are, they're just growing. And the fact that they just lost this election, they're angrier than ever. Um, so there's real fear that there's going to be violence over the coming months. I, I, I could almost guarantee that there will be some level of violence. Um, how much we don't know. Uh, again, I don't know if, you know, I think with such an enormous win with a 55% win, it makes it really hard for there to be something for there to be a coup. But I do think that there are civilian groups that will, um, that have been emboldened over the last year that will continue to attack folks on the left that will continue to attack indigenous people and, and those associated with the Moss party and those associated with the human rights or those who write uh, articles that are critical of their groups or critical of the right or critical of people like Camacho. It's scary times. I mean, Bolivia, I, I've never seen anything like this. This last year has been frightening and, and, and the fear still exists. Uh, the communities, particularly the most vulnerable communities are still very frightened. No doubt, so much more to follow, so much more to uh, worry about, but also to be hopeful about. Um, we'll leave it there. Thomas Becker, supervisor in human rights practice at the University Network. Follow him on Twitter, Mr. Tommy Becker, at MR Tommy Becker. Excellent work, excellent reporting. You should go and seek out some of uh, Thomas's work on the, uh, the the killings. Is published, I think, at Harvard Press and elsewhere. Uh, do follow his work as well. Thomas, thanks so much for all the reporting and all of your good work. Thank you. Thanks for the chat. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. We will chat again real soon. I'm sure the next time we chat, it'll be election related. Who knows? God help us. Talk to you then.